I'm just, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I really don't like the phrase getting better. I don't think like realistically myself, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to get better. Like there's not going to be a point in my life where my depression and my anxiety will just magically disappear and like I'll be cured. You know what I mean? It's not something that I can just wish away or be done with. I'm going to, I'm going to be coping with it my entire life and that's fine. Like, am I going to be mad about it sometimes? Yeah, but I have the resources to be able to deal with that. So I don't like using the words getting better, but becoming, I guess, self-actualization, like being able to have the resources to introspect and work towards becoming the version of yourself that you want to be is something that at this point in time, I think is a privilege and not everyone gets to do that. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with third-year MMT activist Hannah Judson. In part one, Hannah described her journey to MMT and her just-begun MMT-informed sociology PhD program at Stony Brook University in Long Island, New York. Today we talk about a very different topic, which is mental illness and anxiety, and how those things are seen through and informed by MMT. Hannah and I both experienced a traumatic event in our childhood, which will remain with us for the rest of our lives. She describes how she came to terms with this, how she manages it today, and how her Christianity influences her anxieties as well as her politics. We share MMT as a lens through which to see the world, our situations, and ourselves. I end by telling my own story. Regular listeners will not be surprised to hear that I have been strongly influenced by Fred Lee's 2006 book, A History of Heterodox Economics, which coincidentally was recommended to me by Hannah's now housemate and MMTer, Nathan Tankis. The intellectual and academic concepts of economics are only half the picture. The other half is what Lee calls community history the personal history and behaviors of those who develop, support, and benefit from those academic concepts. The assumptions, maths, and models of neoclassical economics cannot be separated from the century of discrimination endured by those who dare to call it wrong. In the same vein, the decades of comedy genius of Bill Cosby cannot be separated from the terrible crimes we now know that he has committed. It is not possible to draw a conclusion until one looks at the entire picture. Despite growing up on his comedy, I've decided to not listen to him again. The clearly good work that I have done, including this podcast, my large set of MMT resources, and many other things cannot be separated from my own behavior and the consequences that it has caused. I have certainly committed no crimes and I have always done the best that I could. I am also deeply ashamed of how some of my behavior has affected others and especially how it has pushed away exactly those who I wish to work with and become closer to. I would also be lying if I said that I was not profoundly sad for the many opportunities lost and for how long it will take to even reach the starting line 
once again. This conversation with Hannah was one of the more important personal milestones that I've experienced. I thank her for the space and support that I needed in order for it to happen. get to just do whatever they want and the rest of us just try to survive like it can't continue like in a pandemic like people are going to die if we don't do anything about it you know it's not the wealthy people who are going to die they can afford the tests and they can afford the health care it's working class people yeah and to isolate exactly they can afford to not go to work they can afford to you know take a 12 month leave of absence, whatever. It's working, it's poor and working class people who will bear the brunt of the economic and health consequences of the pandemic. And what's gonna happen when we're left without a working class? You know what I mean? Like our economic structure relies so heavily on tons of people working for poverty wages to enrich the owners of corporations like Something has to change, and I don't know what it is, but there's there's got to be something big. And I just feel like Joe Biden is not something big. He's the status quo, and the status quo is not going to fix where we are. It's not, or not where just, we're going. It's not just not going to fix it. It's going to make it worse. It's just not quite Agreed. as high speed as Trump. Um, Agreed. Um, okay, great. Uh, all right. Well, why don't we do a drastic change of subject if, if you don't yeah. mind? Um, okay. So I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about anxiety, anxiety yeah. and, and hooking that in. I think it's correct to say, you didn't say I was wrong when I wrote you. <laughs> I think it's correct to say that <laughs> both of us, <laughs> that both of us, like for me, MNT is sort of my lens of truth. Like for some mm-hmm. people, it's religion and maybe Christianity is some, some part of that for you. Like everybody has mm-hmm. a tool that they use to find the meaning of life. And yeah. for me, it's MMT. I mean, it really is mm-hmm. um, almost, mm-hmm. exclusive, almost exclusively or, or, you know, much of it anyway. So yeah. I think that that's largely too for you. I'm sure Christianity and maybe something else is for you. But mm-hmm. to frame the conversation around that. So, you know, I, I will tell my story. I'd like to wait until maybe like a half hour from now or something to tell my, to tell my story. I'd like to, mm-hmm. I don't even know exactly where you feel like going with that, but I, Oh, I, the reason that, that I thought of this with you mm-hmm. is because I, I assume that you didn't know this, but at the conference. So at the 2018 conference was a horrible mess for me. It was like magical in a way. And I gave my presentation. I actually gave my a uh, very primitive intro presentation at, over lunch informally on, on okay. all, all three days at, the, at that conference, which was, you know, obviously a great experience, but it was really hard. It was a really hard emotional experience. And, but at the 2019 conference, it was also difficult, but much less so. And a, and a big reason of why it was less is because of you and another woman who I can picture, but I, I don't, I didn't know her and I haven't seen her since, um, who was at that conference, who I actually, just in the course of conversation, I actually just admitted this is a very like, there's just, this is very anxiety, very stressful situation mm-hmm. for me. And just my being able to say that to you and this other woman, and I, I actually assumed that you knew her, but I, I guess not. She was blonde. She was working at the desk at, to register people. Um really let off a lot of steam and made mm-hmm. it a lot easier and it was still difficult, but it was a lot less. So, so I don't know if yeah. you like remember that or whatever, but, but I remember you brought that, you brought some subject like that up. I don't remember exactly what, but I just have that memory with you. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know where to begin. I don't really know where, what your thinking is with this or your experiences with this, but anxiety and MMT. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I will be honest with you. I don't remember that conversation. Um, I believe that it happened, but I personally have no recollection of it. Although it wasn't like a deep honest, conversation. It was just a, it was just a quick <laughs> thing that was very likely more a big deal to me than to you, but no, it was not like an in-depth conversation in any way. 
Fair enough. I also just, like, don't remember a lot of what goes on because of, like, my various, like, mental illnesses and stuff. Like, I just have a bad memory uh, as a side effect. And so, yeah, that's one thing. Anxiety is something that I actually have talked a lot about and continue talking a lot about from, like, a mental health perspective. Um, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and dysthymia and major depressive disorder when I was... What was the second one? Dysthymia. It's it's basically like a chronic depression, like chronic Mm. mild depression. Um, In addition to like in conjunction with major depressive disorder. So I got a double whammy of (laughs) constantly being a little depressed and then sometimes being really, really depressed, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, I've worked out after lots of years of therapy and, you know, experimenting with different medications and I found a balance that works for me um and actually right at the beginning of the pandemic my psychiatrist was like wow you seem to be handling things really well why don't you try to wean you off of your anti-anxiety medication Mm. and I was like yeah okay like that seems fine like I did the therapeutic course which was you know 18 or 24 months or whatever like yeah let's see if I can handle it and then as I was slowly like decreasing my dose of anti-anxiety, you can imagine the graph. Like it looks like a supply and demand graph. Like my 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 medication was decreasing, and coverage of the pandemic was increasing. Ah, and that was those convenient. Two, those two things in conjunction with each other did not bode well for me, and so. <laughs> after about a week and a half, I called my psychiatrist and was like, I can't do this. Like, I like, like, ramp me back up. Like I'm having panic attacks three times a day. Like the world is on fire and I don't know how to, like, I can't fix it. Like I need, I need help. And so I, yeah, have not tried to, 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 have not tried to do that again since, but it's just a very interesting thing for me as a, white woman as a cisgender like straight passing white woman who comes from a position of privilege like my parents are objectively wealthy it's weird having a mental illness like everything in my life is is pretty fine like i just got married i'm going to grad school so no trauma or no nothing no no origin that you can think of oh no there definitely is like trauma but like oh so so okay so you were saying that from from appearances you shouldn't have it but yeah, obviously like there from, are like on a on a surface level like there's nothing going on in my life like okay. I've, what's depression like i should just be able to function and and i still have that sometimes like i i get really frustrated with like why do i have to work seemingly so much harder than my peers to achieve the same outcomes just because some chemicals in my brain are misfiring. Mm. And then I go, oh my God, like, this is literally nothing. I have the tools to help myself. I was able to access healthcare. I was able to access medication. I can afford my medication every month to like help myself be stable and semi high functioning. And this is what people experience every single day for things as simple as the color of their skin or their gender or their sexuality. like Hold on a second. Oh, I got, a, got another fire engine, don't I? Thanks. So, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things, like navigating identity is really a challenge for me because I do, I want to be careful and I want to acknowledge the privilege that I do have while at the same time, like allowing myself to feel frustrated and allowing myself to be angry about what little (laughs) what few things I have that make my life difficult like balancing those has been a something that I think about a lot I guess well how much was it how much was it something that happened long ago that just sticks with you and that there's, you know, current things that are, you know, causing it in some way or perpetuating it. 
So my initial trauma, which I definitely like don't need to get into in this forum, yeah, no, um, no. was just like childhood stuff, which impacted a lot of my young adulthood and, and I guess my teenage years and my, my young adulthood. And I think that's where it started. And then I like, what, did what age approximately? Oh, I was easily like 14 or 15, like the beginning of high school okay. is when I started experiencing like mental health, mental illness events. But I was okay. really good at hiding them and nobody noticed because I was a straight A kid. Like I did everything I could. I kept my grades up. I had good friends, like by good friends, I mean like air quotes, like good, all my friends were in the AP tracks and the, you know, the super nerds, <laughs> like all this kind of thing. And I was able to, I, I masked my symptoms really well until I was like 15 or 16. And then I just was like unable to do it anymore. It just was too much. And so I finally broke down and talked to my parents and they got me in to see a therapist and all of this stuff. And I was able to do many years of therapy. And finally, after like three or four years of therapy, my therapist was like, well, all right, we've worked through all of your stuff. Like, as far as I can tell. And you seem to be coping really well. Like you've learned the coping mechanisms. You're applying them to your life. Like you have a really high level awareness of like what's going on. You just like the chemicals just aren't firing right. And so that's when I first tried medication and that was life changing because he was right. I was, I was doing all of the stuff I was supposed to do and just still struggling. And ultimately at the end of the day, it just came down to a matter of like, my brain doesn't produce chemicals the same way that another person's might. And so my continuing, my continual sort of like mental illness symptoms, I think are just, I was just genetically predisposed to mental illness. Like it, it runs in both sides of my family. Like mm. any, you know, you look at my family tree and to pin the tail on the donkey, more like pin the mental illness on the person. Anyone you uh-huh. land on, it'll be correct. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh, so now at this point, it's just a matter of managing, managing symptoms, coping. Obviously, COVID has made that much more difficult. Um, but I think through my faith practice and through sort of using. I don't want to like reify MMT. Like to me, MMT is a tool that we can use to achieve justice. I think for me, my faith is what sort of prompts me towards like pointing out inequality, being able to see inequality and being able to feel like, wow, we need to do something about that. There's probably a word for that feeling, but I'm not going to be able to come up with it off the top of my head. But (laughs) this, like, my faith is what motivates my actions in terms of my political activism. And I see MMT as an incredibly useful tool for accomplishing the goals that I see as needing to be done. For example, like a federal jobs guarantee, I think a housing guarantee is something we need uh, desperately. Things of that nature, which to me, it, it starts as a faith thing, like, you know, Christ called us to love each other as he loved us. And, you know, to me, radical love, which is what I think Christ embodied, this concept of, you know, loving the marginalized, loving the outcast, loving those who are excluded from society and the traditional means today, like in 2020, that means we need to provide for people. There shouldn't be people starving in the streets of the wealthiest nation in the, like in the, in the world. There shouldn't be people starving in the streets anywhere, but it's particularly unacceptable in a place where we have the tools and we have everything we need to fix it and we're just not doing that and so for me my faith is what calls me to advocate for radical love and 
doing that, MMT is a tool for advocating for those policies and advocating for those platforms, which will materially benefit the average person, both in the United States and, you know, wherever else that can be applied. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And and I, I see it as a way to envision what we should have, like, a, you know, a goal to sort of look towards, you know, to mm-hmm. distract from what we currently have. Do you practice now in New York? Or I mean, I, I know the, so, the crisis, but, but. Yeah, so my church history is kind of whack. Um, my parents raised me non-denominational, so I didn't really, you know, my mom is always always been a very spiritual person she only has become a chaplain in the last five or six years so that's kind of a new career path for her um but she has always believed you know all denominations are man-made like christ didn't do that like jesus didn't say everyone is going to be split up or whatever and so when we landed in washington we started going to an evangelical covenant church which was fine um I felt at home there. I had a good community there until, mm, I don't know if it was 2019, maybe 2018, the Evangelical Covenant Church as a denomination decided to decredential one of their pastors for performing gay marriages. Ah. And then when the church that he was preaching at recredentialed him, they excommunicated that church from the denomination. And there were a lot of politics involved in tech, the whole like, well, technically we didn't kick them out because they were doing gay marriage. We kicked them out because they recredentialed a pastor. And it's like, well, why was the pastor decredentialed? Like the, the whole thing. I, it's like embrace your hate, at least embrace, be honest about your hate. (laughs) Like, like just be upfront about it. And, the evangelical covenant denomination for anyone who's not like super aware of random Christian denominations, the whole point of the evangelical covenant denomination is that they are, they were meant to be able to hold a sacred tension between more traditional people and more uh, the pietists or the more like progressive people. And that was okay. Like, it was okay to have a difference of opinion and a difference of interpretation of the scriptures, as long as you agreed on, like, the four core elements, which are, you know, the traditional, like, Jesus came to save our sins and, you know, etc. You get salvation through Jesus and Jesus alone, you know, the, the sort of what you would consider the, the core blocks of Christianity. And so for them to then excommunicate a church based on a discerned position. So their discerned position on human sexuality, which was not an essential part of being part of the denomination. Like that was very, just, that was very blatant to me. It was like, okay, as someone who identifies as queer, like I'm not welcome here. Like I understand that. And that is what it is. And it was really hard for me to, see this church community that I had been a part of all of a sudden turn around and be exclusive towards myself and people like me, other members of my my queer community. Do you feel they turned around Um, or did you feel that that's just when you noticed? No, I think, I think, I had I had not noticed it, anything similar to that previously. If anything, the church that I attended was a little bit older and they were a little bit more conservative, but for the most part, everyone was pretty open and accepting, if not affirming. And I was okay with that, like being welcomed and being accepted was enough at that point. I didn't feel the need. I was like, if people have the opinion that being gay is a sin, like they're entitled to that opinion, like I'm not gonna change their mind. Like that is what it is. It's not the denomination's position. It was at the point when it became like, Uh, the organization had some action that I was like, okay, like fine. And so my mom actually had been ordained in the Evangelical Covenant Church 
and she was incredible. She was an advocate for myself and lots of other queer people who were feeling angry and disconnected from the church as a whole. Obviously, this entire, the whole process was very anxiety-inducing. For her, she couldn't, if she lost her ordination, she would lose her job. Like, you can't be a chaplain unless you're ordained as a pastor. And then for myself also, I was beginning to plan a wedding, and I was like, well, yeah, I might be marrying a man, but, like, I'm not straight, so, like, what does that mean for who can marry me? Like, so I don't want to risk... It, did your mom risk her... I'm, so it, did your mom risk her career because she is exactly in the same situation as that pastor who is unordained or whatever the, the term was? So she actually transferred her ordination as almost an act of spiritual protest she said you know this behavior is unacceptable as you know servant witness to the gospel of christ like i'm called to love people regardless of their sexuality their orientation like whatever and so she actually rescinded her ordination from the evangelical covenant church and applied for ordination in the progressive christian alliance Mm. and so she did that over the summer and i was very like eternally grateful that's pretty for cool. That. That's pretty nice um, gesture. And she did it in time for the wedding, so you know, no, no harm, no foul in terms of marrying her queer kid <laughs> was not gonna lose her ordination for doing that. But that was a very like weird thing, and I stopped going to church for a while, um, and then I found a church where I was at in Chicago called Gilead. Uh, Gilead Church Chicago who described themselves as a queer storytelling bar church uh-huh. and that was incredible I think I really reconnected with my faith through attending their church it was unlike any any church experience I'd ever had I literally I came home from my first service and I called my mom and I was just sobbing and I was like mom I just went to church for the first time like that's that's what it like means to go to church there I really found a community there. The radical inclusivity and love and community that the church is supposed to embody, it was the first time I had actually experienced that. Mm, Um, That's great. And so I thought that was really cool. And so I attended their Zoom meetings for a long time. um, (laughs) And through the summer, it's so funny. It's so so funny. Someone from like, Two years or one year ago, so I ascended the Zoom. I ascended the Zoom. <laughs> yes, I, I went it, to Zoom church. <laughs> I went to Zoom church. Yeah, I just I can just picture like a year ago, someone hearing this. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's such a weird. It was such a weird time to like be discovering a church and like reconnecting with my faith tradition and, huh. and all of this stuff. And so, since I've moved to New York, I have not found a church yet. I've also been here for. A, four days so we'll see i'm hoping that i can find a church oh yeah no i of Um, course i asked you what you're are you continuing in new york i I didn't register how little you've been here oh yeah no no worries it's i'm hoping that i can find a church to plug into and create community with i think I think what's important to me in finding a faith community is finding one that really is focused on that radical inclusivity, focused on finding marginalized people and helping them. You know, my ideal church is running mutual aid funds and working to better the material conditions of the people around them, regardless of whether or not they, you know, believe in God. Like, that's not, that's not an, a precursor to... to not suffering receiving dignity yeah like like every single person deserves to feel loved and feel important and respected and also have their material needs met regardless of where they are coming from or what they've done in the past or what they're going to do in the future like i just don't think that those things i don't think that anyone's life should be contingent upon living certain yeah of course of course um uh so i have have two more questions regarding that uh number one uh, i'm just curious does and forgive me i'm bad with names your husband does does your husband share your do you share religion and this particular kinds of religion and spirituality that you have Mm -hmm. 
You do? Oh, okay. Well, that was easy. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, we both Oh, you met in church, had, of course. Yeah, we met, we met at church youth group um, at this church that neither one of us attends because they don't welcome most of you people. So oh, that was that's the one. kind of like... That was the one. That okay. was, yeah, that was the church that we met at. And we've gone through very similar faith journeys as far as feeling rejected from the church and then leaving the church for a while and just doing our own thing in terms of faith practice and faith tradition and not feeling like we have to be like attached to a church. And then the next sort of like realizing that community is important and going to and church, like just going to church for community is just as important as going to church for the religious aspect of it. Uh, and yeah, so, interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know if I interrupted you or not, but uh, the, oh no, you're good. There's a. I have changed what I want my podcast to be a little bit, substantially because of Fred Lee's book, A History of Heterodox Economics. He was a UMKC professor. Uh, actually, Nathan talks. Nathan knows him well, and uh, he he speaks about him on some podcast episodes and recommended a couple books to me, um, by him. His book, A History of Heterodox Economics, is not about academic topics at all. It's about discrimination against heterodox Mm -hmm. economists. And so he emphasizes in the book that community history, the non-academic intellectual history of heterodox, which is now MNT, the book was in 2006 before, you know. Mm -hmm. So the community history is even more important than the academic history. And so that's why... I like a, a significant part of my con- my podcast to be not just MMT concepts, academic concepts, but talking with MMTers about mm-hmm. themselves because I think that provides you know good context. Um, don't lost why I was saying that, but I'm sure it was relevant for something. Um, <laughs> uh, the other question I have for you is uh, your chemicals just don't work the same way as other people, and you know. I am curious how much you think that it genuinely was biological, like when you were born or that the trauma, whatever the trauma was when you were a teenager, that that just so dramatically changed you and you, you lived several years just dealing with that, that this is, this is crude. I don't quite mean it like this, but no, I don't right. know how else to say it, but like a habit it eventually became essentially biological. (laughs) And I'm thinking like my, my son, my older son has chosen to be very quiet in school and therefore he's afraid to ask for help. He's afraid like, and then he's explosive at home. He's just a nut job at home. So he's a straight angel home devil. And (laughs) I really, he's really like afraid to speak out at school, like to ask for help. And, And he's struggling at school. And I feel like, he made a decision years ago and now it is essentially a biological thing or effectively mm-hmm. a biological thing. So I'm just wondering what do you see? Like, is it a mixture of that or is it just truly it was born or, or how much did it, you know, so I'm just curious what your thoughts on that are. Yeah. I think for me, it's some combination of the two. I could not tell you which had more of an impact than the other. I think I definitely had some genetic predisposition towards mental illness from oh, yeah, your outside history. of mental my history. History. Like there was some there was gonna be something there. It was just a matter of how and when I learned to deal with it. Um but then through I think it was really exacerbated by my high school career. Um my family moved from Montana to a suburb of Seattle um, a week before my freshman year of high school. And mm, wow. my high school had the same number, if not more people than the entire town that I lived nearest to in Montana. So it was a big transition for me. I went from a culture where the purpose of education was just to to get a degree and be a farmer or like not even get a degree, like get a high school diploma because you're legally required to. And then you're going to work on dad's farm. Like there was not really a purpose to education beyond needing to have it 
legally speaking. Two, when I moved to Washington, there was a lot of pressure on kids. The demographic of the school was completely different. It was a lot of a lot of wealthy families who mm. expected their kids to get into Ivy Leagues, and so they had been taking SAT prep classes since they were in middle school, like <laughs> fully expected to be in a full AP class track, plus do honor society, plus be the president of a club and do four sports and no have 150 no hours of community service. Like that was the culture that I entered into and was completely unfamiliar with. Well, let me, and let I me ask that- you, I know you don't want to go into it, but just did whatever the, the traumatic thing that happened happen in Montana or did it happen after you got to Washington? Oh, it was previous. It was when I was a young, a young child. Oh, so, okay. okay. Uh, I remember the age yeah. you said 14, so I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I first experienced, I first started experiencing symptoms of mental illness when I was 14 oh, uh, okay. as okay. a freshman in high school. And I got think it. that it was sort of triggered by this adjustment to a completely new culture. Got it. Um, and... I think the pressure there was just a little bit too much for me. And that's why like doing the running start program and like getting out of high school was like super beneficial to me personally. So I see my mental illness as like a combination of these two factors. Like there was some genetic component, but there was also some component of my environment, sort of the structures that I was participating in that definitely exacerbated it and and made it so i don't know if that answers your question yeah no no i think it does and i think i think um i think uh you know once you sort of dive into whatever your life is going to end up being you know with starting teaching and so on that that hopefully will just start distracting you away from it give you something to Mm -hmm. to focus on and even and even if it's there it just may become less prominent or at least that you know hopefully Mm -hmm. so yeah okay um all right well i you know I will tell my story if, if you're okay with that. Um, I, I honestly don't even know, you know, I think I have it finally down to something that, you know, it's not a mess basically. (laughs) Like I can actually (laughs) tell it without either breaking down or feeling like an idiot or, or whatever. I honestly don't know what kind of even reaction that you could give to this or if they're, you know, it's certainly not, asking you anything but it's just like Mm -hmm. i just feel like this is an appropriate place to share that story so yeah you know i have no idea what you'll take from this or if you have any response or anything Uh, i think it probably will take about 10 minutes and then uh, we'll just see what you think um but yeah so this podcast is is an excuse for me to get out of my comfort zone and to, you know, I mean, socialize in a, in a, a non-social, you know, environment that we're all in right now. Um, you know, in a way, I really like that Corona, I mean, setting aside the mass suffering and death that's happening all around us, I've really enjoyed this break. I've really, really enjoyed this break. Um, but okay, so my trauma was, uh, I was really severely bullied for like seven years straight and mm-hmm. in middle school. And my family did their best, but they made things a lot worse. They just, it just made it worse. Yeah. And so at, at the end of high school, it ended. And then I checked out for like 10 years, socially speaking. And I, and I dove into programming, computer programming. And I became a good programmer, but like a decade. I just really checked out. And, you know, I lost a lot of experience, a lot of skills, a lot of just everything. And none of the, none of the anxieties dissipated at all. They were just sitting there, you know, nothing being resolved. And then I met my wife in 1998 and everything just completely exploded physically for me. And I think I've heard, I think I saw somewhere that you mentioned something, physical manifestations of stress. I, I believe I saw that somewhere mm-hmm. with you. 
it yeah. when I met my wife and she she had a crush on me from 11 years previous I don't even she never told me about it we were in camp together and she never told yeah. me about it so I didn't know but 11 years later yeah. we met and she saw me and and you know we immediately started dating and she didn't notice because I think she had a crush she didn't notice my anxieties or she you know whatever looked beyond them or whatever I was a mess. Um, so my stress completely exploded physically. And I now currently have, like, I have a permanent problem with my elbow and my jaw and, you know, so physical, you know, I see my cycle is, is that I give a very good first impression because I clearly do work. I'm smart. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm good at what I do. I'm ambitious and all that. But then after I start, then after I meet someone, I start to get anxious because I'm just simply not comfortable or familiar with someone in power or someone that is where I want to be to not reject me or abandon me. I mean, honestly. Mm -hmm. And so I start to freak out because when someone doesn't, then I'm just, I'm not familiar with that and I'm very uncomfortable and I start to act like an idiot. And then I, then I want to apologize for acting like an idiot or to make up for acting like an idiot, but I don't know how to express it without exploding. So I hold it in. And then that creates a cycle. And now the original me that they met me with, the ambitious and smart and, you know, MMT currently today, MMT stuff, that's gone. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. gone. And now I'm in this cycle of feeling like a fool, wanting to make up for it, wanting to apologize. And then it just never ends. That never ends because that's all I see. Like, that's what I felt. That's what I feel when I walk into the conference. I see mm -hmm. all of these people that I've made a fool of myself in front of and I want to apologize. I want to whatever. And, but there's just so many of them in my mind. There's just so many of them that I just, I can't process it. I just can't mm -hmm. process it. Um, yeah. So I actually see this, what, what really made this become a light bulb for me was when I learned about the, the, I call it the debt cycle, which is, you know, when the federal government spends, they have to issue debt, they have to sell bonds. So mm -hmm. it gives the appearance of you have to, they have to collect money from the private sector before they can spend into the private sector. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming you under, I'm pretty sure you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. So, but the ruse is, but it's a, it's a, it's a ruse. It's just a big ruse mm -hmm. because that money was just given to them the day before. So, you know, it's just, if you're, if you're myopically look at the current transaction, yeah, they had to collect from the private sector, but if you pull out just a little bit, they got that money from the government, just like, the previous transaction, you know, so it's just a big ruse and MMTers understand the underlying logic of how the economy works. They know that that's a ruse and they know what the, how the economy actually works and what its real power is for the public good. And, and that realization is what gave me the realization of that's exactly what I'm doing. That's like, that's like a reflection of traumatic you know, a traumatic experience, a traumatic experience triggers this cycle that you never get out of the cycle and the original you disappears. Mm -hmm. And so, okay. So I'm getting, it's not off track, but I'm just, I have, there's a lot here. Um, so I have, I have lost significant opportunities because of this, like really significant mm -hmm. opportunity. Like I did journalism a while ago for like a good year and a half or so, maybe two years. And I uncovered some pretty heavy stuff. Like I, I had some stuff that made that made some powerful people locally, like very uncomfortable right. and like in a good way, the, in the best way. And so one person who was involved in that story started, was impressed with my writing and started giving me like, you know, inside information. And I got some exclusives through him and it just worked out just amazing. And he flew me down to Puerto Rico. He was like impressed. And he flew me down to Puerto Rico and he offered me a job. But then when I got to Puerto Rico, I was a deer in headlights. I was so painfully uncomfortable. And the yeah. job, the, the job offer disappeared. And, you know, I mean, we speak maybe every now and then, and, you know, it's not, a, not mean, or, but, you know, that disappeared, that opportunity disappeared. And that kind of thing has happened a lot. And it's, yeah. that's the, you know, this guy, likes what I do. And, but now I'm sitting here personally with him and I can't process this situation. And that turns them off because that's a different me than the one that he wanted to hire. You know? And I've experienced that a lot. So, so 
I, what really changed me from wanting to be able to talk to somebody about, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry with what, whatever awkwardness I've created because I've, I really have created a lot of really, I think, pretty painful awkwardness and I don't blame myself. Mm -hmm. I did the best that I could. It really comes from my history and the system that created that possibility, but I am currently responsible now. And, you know, so some lesser people are mean, use that as an excuse to be mean. Some better people choose to just abandon because they don't know how to process. And a select few of like the best people just accept it. And even though, and they're the people that I eventually calm down with. But what really changed me from wanting that urgency of just wanting to break down in front of one of these people and just, you know, reveal my soul. What really changed that was, I mean, several things, but really what, what was the, the final straw and he'll never, he never, he, there's no way he could possibly know this. This was just a, he, you know, I didn't say anything. I interviewed John Harvey and I interviewed Matt Forstatter and they're both around 10 years older than me. And they're, like 30 years into their career and they're where I want to be They're, You know, that I'm, I'm as I'm, I'm maybe older than your father (laughs) and I am starting, you know, so I'm talking to John and he's, and I happen to know that he, or he, you know, he says, he, in a roundabout way, said his age, not directly, but I could figure it out. So he's 10 years younger, 10 years older than me. He's 30 years ahead of me. And I just start to thinking that and a few other, and same with Matt, same with Matt Forstatter. He's a, it's a, about the same. He's like near, he's not near the end, but he's in the second half of his career. And I'm thinking to myself, life is passing me by. I just... Life is passing me by and, and there's nothing wrong with what I want, but I can't get it in the way that I want to get it. And so I don't exactly know how to, to say it, but it's just like, I don't need that anymore in the way that I needed it of like the desperation of wanting to like, you know, just be able to reveal my heart to one of these people that they're not my psychologist that it's like, we have MMT. We have literally the world to save. No, literally. I mean, that's not too far off from an exaggeration. And it's like, I want to be part of that. I really, really want to be part of that in some way. You know, I don't need that particular kind of success that, that, you know, a lot of these people around us have, but I would like to know that I'm somewhat on a path to that kind of, success, whatever that success means for me that I feel like, you know, and so I'm stuck in a neoliberal job, which is as good as it possibly can be given that it's, that's what it is. But, you know, it's an, it's a dead end job and I want to go back to school and I'm just like, this is where, this is where like Matt and John would be 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And if I don't, if I don't let go of that, then I'll be dead before I even get started. So it's just, um, so that was the big realization. And the last thing I'll say is that the thing that I noticed that I need to be really careful about is that I have created these awkward moments. And, you know, even though I've done it, I, it still is not untrue. It still is true that I have done the best that I could. I've had my filter, I've had my history and there's, you know, you do the best that you can. But people don't know that, you know, I haven't, I can't say that I've changed, but I'm clearly, I feel like I'm now on my way to like substantially changing that. But people don't know that. People only know, I'll say the old me. So when I communicate online, for example, and I'll do like a dry humor or something, people don't take that as the new me. They take that as the person that they know, which is the old me. And so they take it sometimes wrong, you know, so I have to be careful of all of these people who I've influenced or, or, 
they know me in a certain way. They know me through that anxiety. I have to be careful to earn their trust to, you know, before I, you know, before I start, you know, being loose around them because that becomes, that becomes different. So anyway, that, that's, that's a lot of stuff. I think I got most of it out. Um, that's my story. That's, that's, you know, that's my story. And that's actually the first time that I've ever said it where, you know, that's, that's, that's heavy stuff. It's clearly heavy stuff. And thank you for listening to it. But that's the first time that I've feel like I've really said the story clearly without losing it and without, you know, going all over the place. So, you know, I I don't even know, you don't even really, I don't know, (laughs) whatever. Just thank you. Thank you for listening to that. Thank you for sharing. I know that it's really, it's hard stuff. It's really, you know, all of these things that we wrestle with and we feel like we're, you know, we're the only ones who are dealing with it. And it's, Mm. it's nice to be able to articulate how and what you're feeling in a way that is useful for you. You know, I think not to like turn around and make it about me again, but no, please um, do. Please do. Use use my analogy to, (laughs) Like in my experience, I've done a lot of therapy and I've learned how to talk about myself and my trauma and my mental illness in a very clinical way um, intentionally. Because if I actually had to emotionally engage with that every single time I talked about it, I would never get anything done. Like they were just not, you know, so... But, but you had to reach but a point, but you had to reach a point, like with the struggle for me was that I could not figure out how to express it without mm-hmm. being explosive, which means yeah. that I would hold it yeah. down even more, which would make it, you know, make that worse. So, I mean, it it worse, yeah. yeah, but, but you had to reach a point. I know you did, but I, you had to reach a point where it's not just a choice of I, I'm choosing not to communicate this. It's, it's being mm-hmm. able to wrap your mind around it so that you could communicate it effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way that doesn't make you, doesn't make the situation worse. That doesn't make the situation worse. 100%. And everybody's journey to get to that point is completely different. Um, I don't, I have a lot of, well, everyone I know is mentally ill. (laughs) (laughs) Realistically speaking, like I don't know I might I could count on one hand the number of neurotypical people I know the n- number of what people realistically. N- neurotypical so just oh, like, neurotypical oh that's okay yeah, regular no, very air quotes normal people um C- wait, uh, C- so, cis mental yeah there you go exactly <laughs> <laughs> um and so it's it's something that I see in a lot of my peers is like figuring out how to open up about your emotions in a way that's actually like meaningful and not just like wallowing, if that makes sense. Like being motivated to talk about your strengths and weaknesses and being motivated to work through all of your stuff in order to become a better person or to become a better version of yourself. Like, I think that's the key to a lot of, I I don't want to say like mental illness treatments, but like knowing that you need to both manage and cope with where you're at right now while also moving towards um i'm just i'm trying to figure out how to say this i really don't like the phrase getting better i don't think like realistically myself like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get better like there's not gonna be a point in my life where my depression and my anxiety will just magically disappear and like i'll be cured you know what i mean it's not something that i can just wish away or be done with i'm gonna I'm going to be coping with it my entire life. And that's fine. Like, am I going to be mad about it sometimes? Yeah, but I have the resources to be able to deal with that. So I don't like using the words getting better, but becoming, I guess, self-actualization, like being able to have the resources to introspect and 
work towards becoming the version of yourself that you want to be is something that at this point in time, I think is a privilege and not everyone gets to do that. And I really wish that that was not the case, but you know, for right. anyone who's on that journey, kudos. Like it's, for any, it's not, for anyone, <clears throat> say that again, for anyone who's what? Oh, for anyone who's on that journey right now, like kudos, that's not, um, not easy stuff. I don't think it has to go away. I think you just need to come up with something else such that it becomes less of a focus and less prominent. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think it has to go away. It, I mean, it's always going to be a part of you, you know, I mean, right. you can't, you can't just get rid of that, but what you can do is you can care about it less. You could focus on it less. You know, that's, that's how mm-hmm. I see it. Um, I did, I, I tried medicine a long time ago and I mm-hmm. just, the side effects were just so unpleasant, yeah. so unpleasant. And, and I'm, yeah. you know, it caused me to not be able to fall asleep. Like I could, mm-hmm. I could just get like within a millimeter of sleeping, but could never get down into it. And so I had to come up with another medicine to get about that and whatever. So I completely, it's been like 10 years since I've had any, and I've been, mm-hmm. that makes it harder in a way, more intense yeah. in a way, but whatever, you know, to it, it, it obviously works for some people and I'm just, just yeah i don't know i don't even know where to go with that but um and i think various treatments various medications like it's the same thing as the economy like there's not a one-size-fits-all approach it's very individualized i had to try like five different anxiety medications until i found the one that worked and didn't have as many negative side effects And it's, you know, a lot of trial and error, which is really frustrating and, you know, doesn't work for everyone. And if you've, you know, you've clearly found a way that you can manage without and, you know, that that's what works for you, that's what works for you. And you shouldn't have to feel any type of way about that. Right. Um, I mean, well, I mean, thank you for listening and giving me the space to do that. And, you know, obviously for sharing your story as well. I mean... You know, I mean, I, I have a feeling everyone has that kind of story. It's just most people don't choose to share it, which is perfectly fine. But I guess I guess they've reached a point where they have had their head around it or at least, you know, some some coping or whatever. But um, yeah. I've, I've been wanting to do this for quite a while. Uh, I did have a conversation with someone uh, a couple of months ago where I I wanted to talk about the same kind of thing, but I wasn't I wasn't ready. It was a much more it was a much more. I'll just say roughly feeling sorry for myself kind of a thing, which was, you know, I felt like I was as close as I could be at that point as far as, you know, saying it honestly, but it was from a more, it was from the feeling sorry for myself point of view. And so that's, that's totally being cut out of it. But um, I've been, I've been wanting to do this for, for quite a while. And I feel like, I feel like this was much, much smoother. This was very, this was as smooth as I, as I hoped it to be. So um, good. Yeah. So thank Good. you very much. Well, for- include, include anything you're comfortable with, you know, exclude anything you don't want. If you want it to just be a conversation between the two of us until you're ready to talk about it on a more open scale, that's totally fine. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I very likely am going to include it because I, I think it came across reasonably well. And I've been wanting, you know, this is my way of communicating to all those people that, that, you know, I've created that awkward stuff with before. This is, this is, you know, this is my way, even though probably, you know, maybe one person will listen to it, but uh, among that population. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so thank you so much for, for talking with me. If there's anything else yeah. that you wanted to close out with, uh, please, please do. Um, I really appreciate you inviting me on to just talk about stuff. It's nice to socialize in the age of, Corona and being socially distant. It's nice to connect with another human being. Um, But yeah, I really, I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and allowing me to share mine. That was actually a pretty significant milestone. So um, thank you for being part of that and, you know, allowing that to happen. So, all right, I will see you back online. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Thank you so much.
Music for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with third-year MMT activist Hannah Judson. In part one, Hannah described her journey to MMT and her just-begun MMT-informed sociology PhD program at Stony Brook University in Long Island, New York. Today we talk about a very different topic, which is mental illness and anxiety, and how those things are seen through and informed by MMT. Hannah and I both experienced a traumatic event in our childhood, which will remain with us for the rest of our lives. She describes how she came to terms with this, how she manages it today, and how her Christianity influences her anxieties as well as her politics. We share MMT as a lens through which to see the world, our situations, and ourselves. I end by telling my own story. Regular listeners will not be surprised to hear that I have been strongly influenced by Fred Lee's 2006 book, A History of Heterodox Economics, which coincidentally was recommended to me by Hannah's now housemate and MMTer, Nathan Tankus. The intellectual and academic concepts of economics are only half the picture. The other half is what Lee calls community history, the personal history and behaviors of those who develop, support, and benefit from those academic concepts. The assumptions, maths, and models of neoclassical economics cannot be separated from the century of discrimination endured by those who dare to call it wrong. In the same vein, the decades of comedy genius of Bill Cosby cannot be separated from the terrible crimes we now know that he has committed. It is not possible to draw a conclusion until one looks at the entire picture. Despite growing up on his comedy, I've decided to not listen to him again. The clearly good work that I have done, including this podcast, my large set of MMT resources, and many other things cannot be separated from my own behavior and the consequences that it has caused. I have certainly committed no crimes, and I have always done the best that I could. I am also 
deeply ashamed of how some of my behavior has affected others and especially how it has pushed away exactly those who I wish to work with and become closer to. I would also be lying if I said that I was not profoundly sad for the many opportunities lost and for how long it will take to even reach the starting line once again. This conversation with Hannah was one of the more important personal milestones that I've experienced. I thank her for the space and support that I needed in order for it to happen.